Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Wurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Daniela Mestianic-Young. She's an author, organizational culture hacker, co-founder of Cavness HR, TED speaker, and combat veteran. She's a profound example of resilience. Born into a religious cult, she escaped at the age of 15 and came to America. She volunteered for military service and served in one of the first mixed gender combat zones as a United States Army captain. I'm honored Daniela took time to join me on the Get Up Nation show, and I'm grateful for Jason Kavness of Kavness HR for connecting me with Daniela. First, I want to make sure listeners are aware that we're going to be discussing realities in our world which may not be appropriate for children to hear. And for survivors of exploitation, I want to ensure that you practice self-care should you listen to this in order to ensure your own health. Make sure you are getting any help you need. And if you need to take breaks during listening to this podcast episode, please do so. Daniela, welcome to Get Up Nation. Thank you, Ben. I'm so honored to be here as a guest and talking to your listeners so my life started off, I won the, the lottery of birth that I was born into a, as a third generation member of a pretty terrible religious cult, most commonly known as the children of God. And I always describe it as, you know, it was this group of hippies looking for their next thing and they found love, faith, and Jesus with this prophet and they just followed him full on for the next 40, 50 years, including after his death. It became international. Unfortunately, it turned into, you know, in addition to love, faith, and Jesus, it turned into some very squirrely things like religious prostitution, like ideas around pedophilia as God's will, and just you know, all of the many things you can think of, constant preparation for the apocalypse, children didn't go to school because the outside world was evil, very, very intense 
kind of stuff. And that was, you know, the first 15 years of my life was literally all I knew. I was growing up in only third world countries, big communes with 100, 150, 200 people. My mother was born and raised in the group. My family was very high up and involved with the leadership. My mother got pregnant with me when she was 14 by one of the top leaders who was incidentally older than her father and had, you know, many other children. So that was kind of my status and intro into that group was not only everything I knew, but everything even my mother knew was this world. And that ended up kind of working out for me because my mom was different than the rest of my friends' moms that had made the decision to join this group. You know, she had gone through a lot of some of the worst abuses and horrible stuff in her life. And while she wasn't really able to protect us children in the way that you would want parents to do, she was able to kind of teach me some very important life lessons that stuck with me that I'm sure we'll talk about. And Well, I guess I'll just talk about it right now. So, you know, one of the things I can remember at the earliest, earliest age, about three or four, was my mom, you know, coming to get me out of these like group nap times and she would take me off to teach me to read. And it was so special to me because I never got to spend time with my mom. I only saw her for about an hour a day. And during those times, she taught me, Daniela, the only thing you need from the world is for someone to teach you how to read everything else you can teach yourself. You know, that's what she had had to do. And that's what I had to do very much. But that one statement absolutely kind of formed everything about my life. And so fast forward to, you know, there's a couple moments on 9-11. I was in the United States for the first time. We were living in San Diego. And it was the first time I'd really seen live news on TV ever. And It was one of these moments for me that looking back, I describe it as, you know, the outside world was literally coming into our living room in a way that it never had before. And meanwhile, you know, our religion was not exactly celebrating, but sort of rejoicing in the idea that this was God's promised judgment on America, which was known to be evil in our world. And it, you know, didn't sit right with me at the time. And I remember, you know, hearing about terrorism and hearing about religious extremists. And I didn't have all the realizations naturally as a 14-year-old, but it was sort of the beginning of the crack in the brainwashing and the socialization, which is exactly what happens when you're in an environment of total control. And so, you know, then fast forward again, about a year and a half later, I was 15. I was at 16, you became a full adult in this society. And so the year of 15, you go through an entire year of indoctrination into a lot of their more extreme doctrines, like how you're supposed to be married to Jesus and all of these different things. And, you know, I was like, I'm going to be expected to have babies soon. I need to leave. How did you come to that knowledge that you needed to leave? And and then at age 15, right, you set out on your own after living in this for your entire life. Yeah. You know, I basically always knew that I was looking for a way out. I mean, I remember from about the age of six being like, I'm not going to do this. 
when I grow up, even though that was the only thing that we were taught was a valid choice in life. And everyone that left, you know, the family, which is what we called it, was a backslider, was going to hell. And I remember thinking, well, you know, hell's not going to be fun. But I definitely didn't, you know, have a way out for a long time because I, you know, all of my family, all of my relatives were also in the cult, as opposed to a lot of my friends and colleagues who could leave and go live with their grandparents who'd lost their own children to a cult and were usually more than happy to take their their grandchildren in and and help them get started. Not that they didn't all struggle because we all struggled. And more recently, I've kind of been thinking about this idea that in every group or every organization, there's, there's one thing that people like glorify or worship. And, you know, in the cult, it was Jesus. And as soon as I decided I wasn't that into it, operating within that system became very difficult. And so I always kind of knew I was getting out and I was just looking for my opportunity, you know, didn't want to disappoint my parents, didn't know anything about the world outside. But I finally had a moment where I said, okay, it's, it's time to go. I really want to go to high school. I really want to go to college. This is my moment. And I sort of started on this path of, you know, creating trouble and just not conforming, which is a really big deal when you're in that world. And eventually I was sort of invited to leave. They have, you know, a process called excommunication and it was, you know, in between you need to rededicate yourself completely or you need to be kicked out. And I said, actually, I wasn't sure I wanted to get out, but I was very scared of the completely unknown outside world. And that was when my mom, again, you know, at this point she's 31, I believe she has seven children. in less than 14 years. She's been a cult her whole life. And she takes me aside and it's sort of in a place where nobody can overhear us is like, Daniela, I've arranged a place for you to stay. You should go. I don't think I would have done it without that. And so I ended up, you know, my parents took me on a bus from Guadalajara, Mexico to Texas and dropped me off with a older stepsister from the much older man she had ended up marrying. And I had zero dollars and I fortunately had a place to sleep. And I tried to enroll in high school and they told me they could not enroll me because I didn't exist. Wow. How did you navigate that? Well, so they told me they couldn't enroll me because I didn't exist. But now that I'd filled out all the paperwork, they needed to call the cops in five days if I wasn't enrolled somewhere. So that was fun. I literally had an American passport and a social security card. And this is where, again, I now say, you know, I did win the lottery of birth because even though I was born in this horrible international cult, I was an American citizen born abroad. And so that allowed me to come here and pull my life together. And it took about a month. I had to go all the way up to the city school district level to get them to not only enroll me, but allow me to test out of two years of classes so that I could enroll as a sophomore and graduate, you know, on time and then proceeded to do, you know, essentially four years of high school in in two, which was was fun and exciting. I actually ended up in a in English as a second language homeroom because they couldn't get over, you know, 
Daniela from Mexico with no paperwork. <laughs> and I'm this very blonde, white, American looking girl. So, th- but I was totally at home, you know, with the, with the Mexican classmates, probably more than I would have been in a regular class because I had just come from Mexico. So yeah, it was super fun, super interesting. And then I had a, but also very overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Is it a sense of empowerment and excitement, but at the same time, you're in a completely new environment. So it's got to be troubling, overwhelming at the same time. What do you go through during that? Yeah. I mean, so my first day of school ever, you know, I was almost 16 years old. There was 4,000 students in my inner city Houston high school. And I just had no idea. And I remember standing in the hallway with my schedule, trying to figure out what it meant (laughs) and hearing these students going by, having just like a normal logical debate and discussion and realizing, oh, I'm not from, you know, Brazil, which is where I spent most of my life. Like I'm from another planet. I don't know how to think this way. And that kind of forced me to throw myself into, okay, well, I got to teach myself, you know, so teach myself logic, teach myself school. And I, I did very well. And when it was close to time to, to graduate or apply to colleges, we had to write an essay for English and the prompt was, what makes you different? And that was another like really key moment in my life where I realized that oh, what do I choose? You know, do I write about my 24 siblings or how many countries I've lived in? So I wrote this one page essay called, I was raised in a cult. And I, you know, very, very much luck and opportunity, you know, the, the teachers read it, the counselors read it, they applied me to scholarships, they sort of a lot of the school administration kind of threw their weight behind helping me get to college. Which, you know, I learned like the the hardest thing about being first generation to go to college is you have no idea how to go to college. I also think I just, nobody told me it was supposed to be difficult to go to college. So I just went. (laughs) (laughs) If my research is accurate, I mean, you're valedictorian of your college class, right? What were you studying? So I went to college and I majored in literature, you know, literature and history. And I think this was me. First of all, you know, I grew up in a world where we we weren't allowed to read anything except our religious doctrine. And so I just getting able to read whatever I wanted and go to class and talk about those books was amazing to me. And it was also my way of learning, right, about like the world, humanity, the country, tradition, all of that. So, you know, I think I was valedictorian because nobody could pay me to stay away from class. (laughs) So in those people that kind of got a taste of what you had been through, and then they threw all their weight behind you to support you, recognizing what you'd been through, are there certain people who in that process were impactful for you that actually did good for you without any kind of coercion or manipulation? Was it strange for you to see someone actually want you to succeed just for the pure fact of you succeeding? No strings attached, no manipulation or exploitation? Absolutely. You know, I remember when I wrote this essay, I was afraid they would kick me out of school. I still see many, many of my fellow cult survivors that are very closeted about their past because they are afraid people will you know, reject them. And so instead, kind of outpouring of support and my counselor, 
you know, which now that I think back, like she had a thousand students to take care of. The fact that she even read my essay impresses me, you know, but I mean, my English teacher handed it to my counselor and said, read this. And my counselor came to me and said, oh my God, come to my office. And we talked and, you know, it's funny, like I had the SAT in two weeks. She was like, what are you doing to study? I said, what do you mean? I've never studied for a test before. I was just going to take it. And she said, oh my God, take these books and read them. And she, amazing, Miss Rayvon, she was this amazing, amazing person that I'm still in contact with and was such a, an early mentor to me. But really all of my teachers, you know, I didn't know how to connect with my peers. I was one of those girls that would, you know, eat lunch in my classroom. And, but the teachers were you know, I could connect with them. I was the, I was the student that was dying to be there every day. And so they liked me. And so they became my kind of support network. Amazing. From there, you wound up joining the army. Do you want to talk about how you went from this environment that you've just described into military service? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was graduating from college, you know, and so much dealing with imposter syndrome. I I literally kept saying, I can't believe they're giving me a degree. Like I fooled everybody, you know, and I still sometimes have these recurring nightmares that people will feel like I didn't deserve to graduate high school. And so the entire rest of my college and career will be invalidated. And I'm like back in high school as a 30 year old. <laughs> and I, so I felt like so lucky to, you know, like I, I did it right. I achieved the American dream. I came from nowhere. I, I now have this degree and no one can take it from me. And, you know, I can, I can always be an English teacher. And I felt really lucky. I, I, at the time was very idealistic. I was like, I want to give something back. Also it was 2009 and I was graduating with an honors degree in English. So <laughs> the officer program in the military seemed like a really good option in the worst economy that we'd ever seen. So I, you know, at the time that was my thinking, I want to do something to pay back the American dream. And there's this amazing program where I basically, because I have a college degree, they'll just let me walk into to basic training and then officer school. I want to be a military intelligence officer. They'll teach me all these skills. I do three years and then I'm done. I've paid my debt. Now looking back and as I study, you know, group behavior and organizational behavior and the way people operate together, I think that I went from a cult to, you know, institutions of learning. And I would not have had any idea how to operate without a structure around me. I don't think I would have known how to go out and get a job or even who to ask for help or any of that. And so I I found this program, seemed like a great idea, and I just went. And then I got to basic training and there's this amazing thing that they do. You get off the bus, they're yelling at you. You have this like 50 pound duffel bag. You're holding it above your head for like two or three hours. It's humanly impossible. Everyone drops it. They yell at you. You pick it back up. And it's, it's to force you to like push yourself past beyond what you think you can do. And I remember, you know, I'm, I'm 22. I'm older than the average private. I've got some education. And of course, I have this entire history in a cult. And I remember just looking around and being like, oh, they're mentally programming us. You know, they're taking humans whose nature is to run away from bullets 
and they're going to break us down and retrain us to run towards bullets. And, you know, I sort of jokingly, but sort of not as, as I'm standing there under the weight of this duffel bag, looking around going, I think I just joined another cult. <laughs> yeah, take us through that. So, I mean, you have such an amazing insight into organizational culture. And so take us through as your experience there, you wound up going to Afghanistan. I mean, you experienced tremendous experiences in different organizations and take us through that. How was that transition for you? Yeah. So I, you know, I showed up to the army and I'm, I'm very competitive. And so, you know, when I was in school, I needed to be the valedictorian. And when I decided to join the army, I was like, I guess I should quit chain smoking and get in shape. I'm going to be judged on physical fitness. And so I did. And, you know, I showed up six months later to the army and I could run five and six minute miles. And turns out that was really helpful because I wanted the mo- one of the most competitive careers, which was military intelligence. And when everything was divided up, uh, men, different women on different scales, but I run as fast as the men, I would get hundreds of more points. So I I was fortunate in that way that I was able to get my career. But I was also very shocked to learn in 2009 that women couldn't, it was like legal discrimination in the army, that you could not be in the infantry, you couldn't be in combat, you couldn't be in this entire genre of roles, which by the way, are all the ones that get you to advance your career the fastest, are all the combat roles that were not open to women in 2009. And I could not believe it that in America in 2009, there was that level of discrimination was still accepted. And I, you know, was determined that that was going to change, which was really cool. And then going into, you know, military intelligence is all about being an expert on the bad guy. And so it's all about, you know, thinking the way in our case, terrorists think, right? So that we can try to predict so that the good guys can then try to either evade or go target. And so it turns out to be a a pretty perfect career for me because I already know all about switching my mindset and trying to understand people that the rest of the world thinks are completely incapable of being understood or irrational. You know, the, the worst thing that any American soldier can do is underestimate the terrorists or think that they're stupid or think that they're backwards. And that's where we we get into trouble. So I really enjoyed that career. And then I, you know, I ended up going to the 101st, which is one of our oldest and most famous divisions. I ended up in an aviation unit. So I was doing intelligence for helicopters, but I was also in the right place at the right time. I'm in Afghanistan in 2011. I'm 23 years old and it is still illegal for women to be in combat, but it's necessary on the ground in Afghanistan because we're not fighting. We're fighting an insurgency, which means we're fighting the terrorists in their country. It's basically a proxy war because the terrain in Afghanistan makes it the most war-torn country in the history of the world because nobody can ever really own Afghanistan. So because of that, we need to win the hearts and minds of the Afghan people so that they support us and not the terrorists, which is hard to do when we don't threaten to kill their children. It's kind of hard to win that one. But, you know, traditional Muslim societies, of which Afghanistan is a a very ancient one, are completely against any kind of contact between men and women. So what was happening is it was becoming very problematic to not have any women on the combat teams. Because 
you know, women need to be searched, women need to be contained, women, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. And so they, you know, the generals on the ground made the decision that like this was happening, even though it was still technically not supposed to be happening. And so I, nobody actually even kept records of this because nobody thought it was a big deal, but I'm pretty sure that I was on the first team that was put together of, it was like 43 women. We were given 40 hours of cultural training and then we were like sent to our respective infantry teams and ranger teams and totally expecting that the guys weren't going to want us there. And in fact, they were, you know, the first thing they said was, so you want to be in the infantry? And then they made us work out until we bled. But once we proved ourselves, they were like, we're so happy to have you girls here. Like we have been waiting for so long. and. One of my, the lieutenant that I work for specifically, it was an interesting parallel in my life because he said to me, Daniela, what makes you different? Which was that same question. And I said, I said, oh, you want to know? And I told him the whole story. And he was like, that's amazing. Again, like you must have cool insights. And he made a point of telling us like, you guys are fresh eyes up. I need your perspective. Don't ask any stupid questions or don't, you know, there are no stupid questions. And so we had, you know, these several very different interesting incidents, but one that's an easy story to tell was we got to this village and the men instantly noticed that the ground was disturbed. Like someone had been digging there. Part of the road was caved in, which meant we all had to walk in a single file. But I noticed that there were no children like anywhere around the village And together, you know, in less than 30 seconds, we realized like there's a bomb in the road in front of us. We need to not go there. And that was a really big deal to our team because most of our former patrol team, including that lieutenant that I talked about, had just been killed in another incident of, you know, booby-trapped explosives that, you know, it's one of those things for me that, you know, at the time people were saying... They were so glad that there were no women on that mission that went so wrong. But now looking back, I wonder, you know, maybe if we had been there, we would have noticed something. You know, it's one of those you never know. But it was very interesting from a, you know, group behavior perspective and organization perspective, which is, of course, what I love to study now, because as long as the idea was that we all need to be the same in order for operations to come out the best. You know, unquestioning obedience, everyone's just part of a team. The argument for 250 years of army history was, are women good enough men? And then as soon as we started actually putting women into combat, the argument still hadn't been solved, but it was necessary. Under a decade, we completely 180'd that perspective. And we realized that you know, when men and women are both trying to kill you, it's a really good idea to have men and women both trying to keep you alive. And, you know, in the last decade, I mean, everything has changed. In 2013, the combat ban was repealed and two women graduated from ranger school in 2014. And then just last year, female four-star general took command of a major infantry division. And So like, you know, in a decade for the oldest organization in the country and one of the largest in the world, that's really fast change. So that was really, really cool to be a part of. And you have an amazing TED Talk and you share your insights into some of this, but the toll of dealing with all of the trauma, the adversity, being in combat, dealing with all of these things, 
as you know, there's a suicide epidemic among veterans. Tell us about times that were difficult. If you're comfortable and willing, you mentioned in your TED Talk uh, thoughts about dealing with uh, suicide. Can you share a little bit about all of your experiences in dealing with combat in this environment? Yeah, for sure. So I think I was, you know, battling suicidal ideology for most of my life. And especially in the 10 years after I left the cult. And, you know, we always think of it as, well, I mean, it must be such a good thing. Like you got away from the cult. But other than the fact that I was finally in school, I was dying to go back because those were the people I could connect with. And of course, I couldn't go back, but I couldn't connect with other people either. And I, I struggled for a decade. When I got to Afghanistan, it was, it was really bad. It was really hard. You know, I, I would excel at everything I did professionally, but I was just horrible, horrible, horrible with people. And a lot of it was, you know, I just, I didn't get the cultural cues. I didn't know how to interact and people not knowing about me or my history just thought I was really weird. And so, you know, being isolated all the time is honestly really what I think like most suicide comes down to is just feeling completely alone. Then when I got back to Afghanistan, it was all of a sudden I realized I was no longer in control of my life, you know, the life that I had fought so hard to own. Afghanistan is very, you know, being on even on base, it's very, it's like you're living in a war zone kind of. And it's, you know, there's, as most of the listeners probably know now, there's really, really bad sort of rape culture and rape epidemic for especially women, but all service members, especially when you're overseas. And I, you know, was basically just like instantly re-triggered into all of these traumas that I had never dealt with from my childhood, where it was kind of interesting to me that when you're growing up in that environment, that's all you know. But when you're re-triggered back into it as a 24-year-old who now knows that adults should be better, you know, I would wake up from these dreams where I was five and six and going through abuses and be in that world and you you can't escape it when you're deployed. You know, you're just, you're there for a year and there's nothing you can do. And that's one of the reasons that people, you know, will will turn to suicide. And I had just lost, you know, six members of my team that I was very, very close to. And it was, it was horrible. So yeah, one day I, I climbed up on a guard tower and I was thinking about, you know, do I shoot myself? Do I slip my wrist or do I just jump? And I think the only reason I did it is I realized that none of those would, were guaranteed to work. So I would just wait. And finally, when I got home, I, you know, you think when you get home, it's going to get better, but it doesn't because then you're dealing with, you know, anger and PTSD and, lack of purpose and all of these other things. And I was very, very low. And I had a friend actually give me some tough love and tell me to get the F over myself because I wasn't as different as I thought I was. And that was, it took me about four years to complete this realization, but that was a a good kick in the pants for me to kind of stop giving myself permission to always be alone or always feel sorry for myself or think that, you know, of course I was never going to overcome my trauma because it was so extreme. And really it was the beginning of realizing that 
all human beings go through trauma. All human beings go through loss. Nobody can control their life. And that's became the basis of me learning to connect with other human beings. And that 100% saved my life. Wow. And it seems like your life is a constant evolution of these transitions. You've, you've functioned in all these different environments. And so basically become, you know, a genius on the topic of transition. Your TED talk is called Lost in Transition. Largely, it talks about having a compass within you to help navigate these disorienting times, these challenging situations. Will you share a little bit about how you made the transition from going through all of these experiences and then discovering these gifts that you have to give that today you're using in unprecedented, phenomenal ways to really improve our world? Will you talk about how you navigated into your expertise today and what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, to start off the one benefit of having the the really extreme and really kind of obviously traumatic life is it is always easy to say, well, if I got through that back then, I can get through this. You know, so so kind of starting off there, but the the compass as I call it that I I kind of figured out was you need three things to really navigate any kind of change, but also navigate your life. And that is you need a purpose, like why you're on this earth, no matter what you believe in, like what you think you're here for. And then you need people that support you. And I've actually broken it into three types of people. You need like your friends and your family, like people that are going to love you and hug you no matter what. You need your your tough love people, which I kind of call your mental health people, which can be mental health professionals, but also other people, you know, like my friend that are going to sort of hold you accountable and tell you to stop whining and give you challenges to go fill. And then you need professional people, you know, that are going to help you along your professional journey. And you can, you know, literally I have done this, like you can make an Excel spreadsheet with columns of those people and fill them in with names and see where you have gaps and then go cultivate more people where you need them. And All of this, I guess, to answer your question, I kind of figured out when I was going through my 75th big round of transitions (laughs) when I was, you know, so I went back to war another time. I, you know, became a captain. I got really good at my job. And then I also met my husband on that deployment and we got back and I made the decision I was going to leave the military, become an army wife. We had a baby right away. We moved to a different state. I had to go get a job. I had to figure out my new purpose. We did all these different things at once. And even though you think like I've been through it so many times, it's just hard every single time. I'm going through it again now with my husband is retiring and we just downsized and we just moved into an RV and I'm figuring out a new career. And it's it's the same kind of difficult process. And, but one of the things I learned in the military is if you have a plan for your operations, they still won't go according to plan, but you're much more likely to be successful in your sort of ultimate outcome. So that was the, yeah, the process map compass that I sort of have figured out and now have shared with the world. Wow. That's so great. And I mean, you have a new podcast coming out. You have, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but uh, future projects that help share your story. 
tell us a little bit about what's happening and what we can look forward to here. Yeah. So let me, you know, real quick story, try to keep this short. When I was in Afghanistan, my second time, I was a captain. I had never really shared my past with people professionally. And then I did share my background story with a mentor of mine. And rather than say to me, Daniela, you are amazing. He said, Daniela, have you ever thought about what insights you have to group behavior and culture and leadership? because of these two essentially extreme organizations that you've been a part of. And I did not know at the time, but that's all I've thought about for the past six years and worked on. And that's kind of my, my focus today is culture and how we build it and how we change it and how we don't let it get out of hand and how, you know, business leaders or anyone in any organization can kind of build a deliberate plan for their culture. So it's kind of insights and culture theory and also military operations planning all married together is, you know, what I do with companies. And then I'm, you know, I'm branching out into all this different stuff. So I have a a podcast that is called Culture Hacking with Daniela Mestinek-Young. And I... You know, the the realization that I got all these interesting insights from my unique journey, but then also my love of connecting with other people and hearing their stories kind of comes together. So I have people tell me their life journeys, and then we chat about what their insights are into any realm of culture you can possibly imagine. And I've had the most amazing interviews, so people can, listeners can definitely go check that out. I'm working on my first book, which is about the idea that human beings will do literally anything to be accepted in a group that they've voluntarily chosen. And the format of the book is a memoir where I show you this through my stories of life in a cult and life in the military and then what is you know happening in our country today and in our world today and all the many groups that we might be a part of. So that's the book I'm writing. It is currently titled Uncultured, and it is currently in the process of navigating the book deal. So that's, that's all I can say, but hopefully there will be good news this year on that front. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And will you share a little bit here, you know, your expertise about bias, norms within organizations, organizational culture, will you share some of the success stories that you've had where you've helped an organization develop a healthy culture or overcome a lot of toxic environments or something? Will you share a little bit about how you're helping companies and people within these organizations to succeed and the satisfaction that that creates in you after all that you have endured? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the biggest thing about culture, everyone realizes that it's important, but nobody realizes that it needs to be built on purpose with intention. And so, you know, I tell my clients, you're either building it on purpose or off purpose, you know, and and nobody sets out to build an evil religious cult. They set out to build something great and then it turns out to be either not so great or sometimes really bad. So, you know, I have a lot of success kind of coming into an organization and poking at those group norms that they don't see anymore. And I call it, you know, expose the culture you have to begin to build the culture you want. And 
you know, different things. I worked with one veteran organization that was wondering how they could attract more women. And it was as simple as you need to host events that attract women, <laughs> which, you know, sounds simple, but there's a lot to that. And by, by poking at these, by getting into like, you know, why, instead of just saying, well, it's a pipeline problem, very few veterans are women, you know, getting into like, why, what is it about, you know, female veterans? Well, if you ask female veterans, one thing they all have in common is they're all tired of being the only women, woman in the room. And so like we, when we had to do it for a career, we did it. But if we don't have to do it for our networking events, our professional events, our environment, we're not going to choose to do that. So then it turns out that growing your diversity is just as simple as putting a woman on your leadership team, making sure that all of your marketing materials feature women, and making sure that you're asking them what they want and engaging them. And so, you know, some of those are big changes. Some of those are little tiny tactical changes. And then, you know, it was, it took like four months or something till we had a, a veteran tech event that was 40% women, which is, you know, the military is still only 17% women. So it was, you know, some really great growth, really great change. And that's kind of the, why I'm a consultant doing this is because I can come in with the outsider view and not have to worry about telling leaders what they want to hear and just telling them that, which is why you pay up front, you know, but just, you know, in a very nice way, I'm, I'm friendly and smiley and bubbly, but, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you asked this membership of your population what they think, you know, because we, we all don't know what we don't know and we all have blind spots and, you know, which is another military concept. We call it 360 degrees of safety. Like when you're out in a war zone and you need to pause for any reason, you circle up and everybody's pointing their gun out at a different sector of fire. And so everyone has a slightly different point of view and that's how you're hundred percent protected. And so, you know, you can do that in an organization, but one of the things I think that a lot of times leaders will do wrong about diversity is anytime they see it as social justice, like we need to have a diverse team because people deserve a chance. I don't think it breaks through to where it actually needs to be. And so, you know, I'll focus a lot of my talks and a lot of my teaching on the business case for diversity, right? Like you need diversity because you can't possibly have all the perspectives, which means you need to let people show up as their true diverse selves. You need to ask people what makes them different, learn what makes them different. And because there are so many leaders that hire the diverse team, but then they expect them to show up and toe the party line and fit the culture and be like everyone else. And then you don't get the benefits of the diversity. So why are you doing it? Well, that's excellent. It's such a challenging perspective. And when leaders have the humility to actually allow that to happen and to grow and to break down some of the biases or norms that are not healthy, that's got to be satisfying not only for you, but the people in the organization that have been hungering for it, that create an environment where they can be themselves, where they can actually grow, where it's not just, you know, saying the right thing because the boss expects it, but actually having, you know, in a world where most people in America can't stand their jobs to have an environment like that, that's profound. Yeah. You know, and it's, 
it's very satisfying to work with leaders who, you know, sometimes we're so worried about sounding good or being nice and not realizing that like your culture doesn't have to fit everyone. It just needs to be specific to how you want your organization to be. You know, I'm very into like, there's not a lot of goods and bads and blacks and whites, you know, values are gray. It's how you implement them. And the more clear you are on exactly what your value is, exactly what your culture is, exactly what kind of people you want in that organization, the happier your employees are going to be and the less turnover you're going to have. And when you're going through this process, you're probably going to have some turnover when you're starting because there's going to be, if you've never done this intentionally before, then you've hired a bunch of people into your organization that don't fit there. And the thing is, they're not happy there either. And so a lot of times, like helping them to move out is the best thing you can do for them. And I say this as somebody that has been helped to move out of an organization before. You know, at the time getting let go did not feel great. But now I realize like I was not happy there. And so I was not my best self. And so it was the best thing that happened to me was not being there anymore. Amazing. And, you know, I got to ask this podcast is built on the concept of helping people access and sustain resilience in their life as they face adversity. So I got to ask when you think of the concept of resilience and the challenges that people face today. What do you think people need to access within themselves to increase their ability to be resilient during adversity? What do people need to be resilient? So I'm always going to go back to connection, right? Like who, and, and I think there's two important parts about that. Like who are the people that you can literally call? Like in the middle of the night when you have a gun to your head, who can you call to come to your house and take your gun away? Right. And that sounds really serious, but you know, whatever that version is for you, who are those people in your life? And if you can't think of anyone, you need to go out and build those people because nobody can survive life by themselves. Like it is impossible. We all need to have our groups. And then the second part that I think comes with the connection that builds resilience is the more you connect with people and the more you listen to their stories and their struggles, you will realize that you are not alone. You are not like unique in a bad way, right? Like you're not like everyone, when they are struggling, they kind of think no one else can understand them, which is actually a little bit conceited. I've learned, you know, because human beings understand other human beings. And as soon as we open up our worlds and we let people in, like it might not be exactly the same situation, but people can understand. There's a wonderful story in Michelle Obama's book, which is an amazing memoir, where she talks about when she had a miscarriage and she started talking about it and she never realized how common it was because most women and men will suffer through that experience completely alone. So yeah, like for me, those are my two biggest resilience things. And I feel like the times that I've really, really, really struggled and come really, really close to giving up were when I didn't have strong connections cultivated. And then I can go through some incredibly hard stuff when I do have strong connections. And it's, I wouldn't say it's easier, but I know that it's survivable. That's a great points. Excellent. And Anybody listening to this, if you're at that point where you're thinking of giving up, reach out, get help, call 
the hotlines that are out there. Do what you need to do to get the help you need. Your life has value. The last thing we want is for you to take your own life. We want to help you thrive in this world. And we want to help support you as you become the person that you're desiring to be and get through the pain. So there'll be uh, links below and all the contacts here, making sure that crisis hotlines are available so that you can call it, get the help you need and keep striving. So I just want to bring up here the last section of the show here. Danielle, this has been mind blowing talking with you. Love hearing about your insights and all the things that you have endured and how you're creating a brilliant world today. I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Are you willing to run through these six quick questions? Of course. All right. Who are you thankful for today? So I've got my mom for giving me the tools I needed, my high school counselor for starting me, my mentor in the army, Scott Halter, who set me on like my path today. And then three amazing kick-ass girlfriends that are actively helping me conquer the world. Awesome. All right. And then now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? I am thankful for the opportunities to only work on things that I'm absolutely passionate about and make money doing it. Awesome. How do you fuel the fire within you? I seek out interesting and challenging conversations and ideas to engage with. So that's books and people. And that's my motivation. Excellent. What's one thing adversity taught you to value? Attitude. You can either have an excuse or you can have a result. That's epic. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? I am building a thought leadership platform in multiple countries and launching my own podcast. Ah, that's killer. I love it. And then what will you do tomorrow that you never thought you could? So not exactly tomorrow, but the end of this month, I'm giving a major professional speech in my second language at Brazil's Military Academy. How can people learn more about you and your amazing work? Yes, so they can subscribe and follow my podcast, which is Culture Hacking with Daniela Mestinec-Young, and it is everywhere you get your podcasts. My website is Daniela Mestinec-Young, and that link hopefully is in your show notes because it's hard to spell. And people can drop their email there to get updates on my really cool book, and then follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniela M. Young. I'm doing a really cool video series while I'm traveling South America for two months with my family on business and pleasure. Nice. Excellent, Daniela. It's such an honor to have you on the show. All the very best to you and your family. 